ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Acts of Pod. I'm your host of Acts of Pod, Brandon Shue, uh, and I'm joined today by Mark Parsky from McVeigh and Parsky. Mark, thanks for uh, thanks for being on the pod. Well, thanks for having me on. Mark and I go way back, probably 2005, 2006 time frame, working together while I was risk manager for Tricam Industries and uh, Mark, our uh, National Defense Council. But Mark. Why don't you give us maybe the Reader's Digest version of uh, where what you're doing today and uh, maybe a little bit of background on kind of uh, where you've been throughout your career from a kind of litigation practice standpoint? Thank you. Well, today we have an office in Chicago, our flagship, which consists of about 16 lawyers, and we have three lawyers, soon to be three lawyers, in a uh, relatively newly opened office in uh, Chatham, New Jersey. Firm is interesting because we're, we're, we're not a huge firm, but we engage in both local and national practice. We handle a, fir- a full tort and commercial law practice in both of our offices locally, but we, for years, have represented national accounts, especially on product liability and insurance coverage. So that's really where my background goes back really to the early 80s. We've represented uh, in conjunction with uh, Brandon in a previous life, uh, ladder manufacturers and various other product manufacturers, fireplace manufacturers, et cetera. So we're unique in as much as uh, with our national practice, we're admitted pro hoc vice. We try cases all over the country and have for a long time. The firm's been in existence uh, since 2003 but I go back to really 1983 doing that line of work. So I've been to some interesting places and uh, certainly seen some interesting trends. And I've been there on a few of them with you. One thing that I've always found unique about your firm in a an ocean of, of law firms that are not trying cases, more and more cases going to settlement, more and more cases being resolved very, very late in the litigation process, maybe on the courthouse steps, your firm has been trying cases when others have not, and that's probably mostly derivative of the type of customer you have. But how do you think that has given you advantages in finding customers when you're litigating more than anybody else? Certainly, it helps us because we serve a niche. There are some firms that aren't as good at getting to the finish line on trials, but it really helps our clients. We've had recent instances where lawsuits have been filed against a product manufacturer. They do a little research. They see we try cases. They see we win cases on summary judgment in conjunction with a Daubert motion. And we've had some folks throw in the towel. So there's the old phrase, your reputation uh, precedes you. But it's helpful in certain contexts if people understand you're ready to try a case and you've done it before. Yeah. I mean... I don't know how much, and we're going to talk a little bit about litigation trends today. I don't know how much of what you would call kind of social inflation or even regular inflation is kind of plagued by the fact that these these settlements almost set precedent for themselves, if you know what I mean. If you get into that zone of just settling cases, that the last settlement is kind of the the benchmark that almost happens, you know, internally from it, whether it's insurance companies that are dictating those settlements, you know, let's say, a, you know, they settle the broken arm case for whatever it is, $500,000. And 
And now that suddenly becomes the standard or what they think they need to settle a broken arm case for. You know, we're just on our side, we're just seeing so much inflation, inflated numbers, you know, since you and I've been, you know, since you and I stopped working together and the, the relationship that we used to have 10 years ago. I mean, the numbers that I see now are just so much bigger than when I left that it's just hard to hard to understand if the if it's not that I don't know what else to, could possibly be contributing to it as much except for maybe litigation financing which we'll talk about. Do you, do you agree with that? Uh certainly do. I think there's been uh to some degree in some quarters inflation on actual settlements for sure. We've noticed especially since the pandemic plaintiffs attorneys especially in the personal injury sector digging in with you know, what we consider to be unrealistic, large demands, and some of them taking it to the finish line, if not, you know, just before the finish line. And in conjunction with that, we're also seeing verdict uh, inflation. And we'll talk a bit about that, I believe, too. There are some crazy high verdicts coming in. Yeah, unbelievable verdicts. I wrote about one the other day, but the one that everybody's probably heard, well, a couple that everybody's heard about, but one in particular that just happened recently is this Star crane verdict for $860 million, which is one death, which, you know, uh, I said in my post in my newsletter, I said, I mean, I'm very obviously sympathetic to the family. I, you know, the, the facts of the case aside, this is obviously a terrible thing that happened, but one person died and the verdict is almost a billion dollars, which to give some contrast to, uh, you know, Rupert Murdoch just, just settled with, with Dominion for $750 million and one of the largest settlements that's ever, that's ever taken place. I, how did, how can somebody get a billion dollars that isn't even a, even close to that on an earnings scale? This was a 29-year-old woman who was killed when a crane from a nearby construction site fell on her apartment building. And uh, the facts, like in many cases, are very sad. She played no part in her own accident. She was simply sitting in her own living room when the crane crashed through. But the numbers are astronomical, and a, a few things that stand out, uh, the jury gave the plaintiff $160 million more than they asked for. And we all know what goes on during closing arguments. The plaintiff asks for more than what they really think they're going to get. And the defense tries to come in a little lower and there's a compromise. So the fact that the jury gave the plaintiff 19 percent more than what the attorney asked for indicates to me that uh, they were mad. They were mad about a few things in this case. So I, I took a little look to see, you know, what could have triggered this. And what was really fascinating is. There was a future mental anguish award of $50,012,006. Now, where does the 12006 come from? That was the apartment number of the young lady who was killed. So the, wow. the jury was sending a message, weren't they? Big message. And there's obviously things that happen every day that, you know, are, you, know you could argue negligence plays a role acts of God play a role, whatever it might be. But I mean, we're talking about a storm, right? That uh, basically pushed this crane over. And for a crane that wasn't in operation when the accident happened, it was just being pushed around in a storm. And I get it. 
they did things they probably shouldn't have done there, at least in the eyes of the jury. The the number is just staggering. It's outrageous. The pivotal facts seem to be that there were rusty bolts. The the crane operator had worked 80 hours that week and didn't put it in weather vane mode, the crane, where it would spin around with the wind. There was a, a sign on top that apparently contributed to the failure that violated OSHA standards. The inspection that had been scheduled to take place had never taken place prior to the accident. So there were some egregious facts, but, you know, under the law, you can have some egregious facts, but at a point, compensation is compensation. The goal here is to compensate. Right. Uh, there, there, there was a punitive aspect, aspect to the case, but even the compensatory part of the case, uh, what stood out to me was the mental anguish award was... 190 million, you know, 140 for past mental anguish and 50 mil plus the odd total uh, that I talked about going forward. And no doubt this was a, a horrible experience for the, the parents who survived. But at a point, you have to talk about compensation under the law. So I wonder where a uh, remitter is going to come into play here. And the, some of the some of these numbers are going to be brought down. But uh, We've seen billion-dollar awards in the asbestos world with recent verdicts. So, you know, that billion-dollar, uh, you know, I remember when a million dollars was a big deal. Right. So now now it's a billion they're trying to crack. How many in the asbestos world, how many plaintiffs were involved in a billion-dollar verdict? As I recall, it, it wasn't, a, you know, a great number. You know, it's not like we were dealing with a five thousand dollar group here. You know, it wasn't a right. class action. It was a, it was a it was a, a regular lawsuit in the sense that, uh, you know, a class hadn't been certified. So there was plenty of money to go around. So uh, no, I think that we are knocking on the door of billion dollar settlements. The question is, how does that fit? You know, within the parameters of what the jury is really supposed to be doing, which unless it's punitive damages, they're supposed to be compensated. The plaintiff, and then even on punitive, some states have caps and limitations on that as well. That you know, the judge can bring things in line. But this is a tremendously sad case, Graystar. There's no question about it. There obviously were aggravating facts. You wonder strategically what was done. There was one defendant who came out with a zero. They were not guilty. The crane owner who employed the crane operator got out for zero, and Graystar, who basically leased the crane and the operator they were hit for $860 million. So I would think they they touched a nerve with some bad facts. And uh, exactly what happened, I don't know, but that's an angry jury. And that's certainly not the only angry jury we've seen, especially since the pandemic. Not to say there aren't not guilties out there in the, in the personal injury setting. There are, but it seems as though lately, if you give certain juries a reason, they'll really tee off on some of these verdicts. Yeah, and it's creating quite a disturbance or disruption in the insurance market. You know, you're talking about total loss, total limit losses here in an environment right now where insurance companies are kind of flailing from five, six years of not making any investment income and having really high combined ratios and just finally now getting to maybe rate at where they want to be from a rate adequacy perspective and then dealing with some of these enormous losses on top of cat storm losses and everything else. It's it's a really interesting time. And I want to talk about maybe why these verdicts are happening with 
the gray star verdict. It looked like it was maybe a little unorthodox, but there was a there was a Texas trial lawyers association that had it looked like <clears throat> had raised about a million, one point two million or one point five million dollars to fund the prosecution here. But in general, I mean, back in the days when we were you and I were doing this, I felt like the checks and balances were a little bit more on the rails for plaintiff's counsel. You know, they historically take these cases on a contingent basis. They're funding it themselves. And if they can't fund it themselves, they have to be really particular about the cases that they're picking. So they don't get into a, I know you and I both have a, some memories of this, but so they don't get into a Jan Schlickman like scenario of bankrupting law firms from a, you know, the, the book, the movie, the civil action with Jan Schlickman as kind of the, the lead uh, plaintiff's attorney in the case. I know you have, you've actually had dealings with him, you know, back in the day, but that was pretty common, right? A plaintiff's firm might go under taking on a case that they couldn't handle, but now they can get financed. They certainly can, and that has changed the game a bit. You know, there's different types of litigation funding and financing. There's the consumer variety, which basically gives the plaintiff, him or herself, money to live on while they ride out litigation for five years under sometimes difficult circumstances. There's commercial financing in in the corporate setting for commercial litigation. It actually allows companies to finance their litigation and not affect their balance sheet as much. And then there's funding for attorneys and law firms, as you've mentioned, where if they have to spend, you know, $100,000 on experts, the money's available. And it propagates litigation and perpetuates litigation in two respects. First, they're able to do it. You know, a smaller shop wouldn't be able to do this without the financing. And number two, it does add another person who comes to the table when settlement talks take place. Because In a traditional personal injury case contingency, you have the plaintiff's attorney who maybe gets 33%. The plaintiff, him or herself, is going to get 70%. Once you're into litigation funding, you got a third partner there. And we recently thought we had a case settled, and they kept it kind of quiet. And then we found out about litigation funding that was basically a factor in settlement discussions. And all of a sudden, there wasn't enough money for everyone. So it was done off camera, but it can make cases more difficult to settle. But experts are getting so expensive. And, and you know, frankly, that's another trend we've seen since the pandemic. Boy, you, you retain a, some of these doctors and engineers now. Wow. Um, really? It's really expensive. Yes. And I think you, you talk about inflation. I think there's been expert witness inflation that is really impacting litigation and once uh, certainly litigation funding allows parties especially the plaintiff in a p in a contingency case to take on the expert you know witnesses that they need to have and otherwise i don't know that a lot of shops would be able to do this certainly the you know the the really high-end ei firms are used to doing it but the cost of experts and the time involved in litigation always brought an air of sanity to the process. And I think litigation funding uh, does take some of the sanity out of it. Yeah, it definitely seems to. And I think there's a moral hazard element here too, given that most of the investors of these funds are, they're semi-obfuscated because 
they're set up by a, a litigation financing operation, but those finance facilities are backed by, you know, hedge funds and different investment outfits, different private charitable donations, all sorts of things that are kind of disguised that you might not know about behind the scenes. And then, you know, when you really look at the facts, private citizens and non-sophisticated investors are investing in something that could be detrimental or kind of antithetical to the whole investment strategy or investment goal. So it's, it's, it's just a really kind of unique situation where I feel like it's, this kind of needs some guardrails. And I know that there's been some uh, tort reform recently in Florida, and I definitely, I've seen some states that might ban or disallow these private investment vehicles. But are, are you seeing from your side kind of any chatter on putting some sort of more strategic resolution on these investment vehicles? Certainly, uh, I haven't seen anything in Illinois. I haven't seen a whole lot nationally. It's a relatively new field. And like anything else, too much of what some feel is a good thing, uh, eventually it's going to need some regulation. Right. It, it is an unusual situation because you, you brought up hedge funds and you know, it almost sounds like organized gambling the way you you, you characterized it. Um, right. you know, let's let's pick a good one and we'll all get I think, in. That. I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. But the interesting part is these funds aren't supposed to control strategy of the case, and generally they don't. But they are privy to what's going on. And in fact, there's a culling process where they determine which are good opportunities and which ones aren't. No one wants to invest in something that's not going to turn out. And there's a, a lot of information that's exchanged and there's discussions. The common interest doctrine seems to apply because you wonder how, how do they keep the attorney-client privilege, you know, sharing all this information with basically bean counters. I hate to put it like that, but right. um, apparently so far, nobody's had a, a privilege issue where, you know, private information hasn't been disclosed. But the one thing that I've been watching uh, are, are these folks actually dictating strategy and, you know, they, they seem to be leaving it to the lawyers, but they dictate settlement strategy because they're there holding a financial interest in the case. So they, they do have an impact on the outcome of the case. Right. Right. And when it gets in front of a jury, um, does the jury know about it? Number one, which I think is a very relevant question because the jury knows whether insurance is involved on the other side. Usually, I mean, they can certainly or they if they don't, they assume they're involved. So, you know, now we're talking about a beneficiary that's being disclosed, maybe, probably not. I mean, I, I feel like there's some issues there, too. Yeah, the general rule across the country is uh, the jury's not supposed to be told that insurance has covered anything or that there is insurance. There's usually a motion in limine. But you're right. I mean, any juror who's lived outside a cave is going to know that there's probably insurance involved which is interesting because sometimes companies are self-insured and there is no insurance. Right. But in terms of litigation funding, I have, I have not seen where it's ever been disclosed to a jury. It's probably the same as if in the old days, the plaintiff's attorney took out a loan because he thought it was a great case. You know, that wouldn't be disclosed to a jury. They can certainly see for themselves that, wow, a lot of time and expense has gone into this. But thus far, I, I've never seen this get in front of a jury and I don't know that that is on the horizon, but yeah, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah. How about any 
other trends that you know you've been seeing from your side? Obviously, in this post-COVID, you know, we went through a period of time. I don't know how long where these courts were pretty much shut down, right? There weren't a lot of trials happening. And then we went into more Zoom-style mediation and maybe Zoom trials. I don't know if those actually happened or not. But where where are we kind of sitting now in a post-COVID world? Uh, we're, we're into what I call a little bit of uh, frantic activity with the national emergency and most state emergencies now being vacated. The courts are fully opening up. Any restrictions, for instance, uh, you know, in Chicago at the uh, at our state courthouse have been released. I mean, even you know, going back a year ago, jurors and various courthouses were wearing masks, et cetera. A lot of that stuff is going by the wayside. And what we're seeing in various states and various jurisdictions is the court trying to catch up on a backlog. And cases are now being set for trial in mass. And, uh, you know, obviously there's got to be a backlog because there was such a slow dissolution or, or resolution of cases over the last probably three years. So we're seeing a lot of trial activity. Cases are getting set for trial. People who want to go to trial, they got their trials. People who really didn't want to go to trial have a trial. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're seeing some voluntary dismissals because folks just aren't ready. They thought that the whatever we were doing before was going to go onward. But frankly, what, what we're seeing are our cases going to trial now. And without even some of the restrictions we saw last year, you know, it's just regular old jury selection, regular old trials, and none of the masks and none of the other restrictions. There were even restrictions on the number of trials that could take place per week. There were restrictions on the number of trials per floor. We're seeing a lot of that stuff, not everywhere, but a lot of that stuff going away. So it's going to be a busy couple of years. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like you're back in full force and maybe more from where you were before. Are you seeing any, you know, there's always kind of new trends and kind of tactics that the plaintiff side is taking. Uh, obviously, we talked about litigation financing. Are you seeing any other new trends or tactics that that side is is taking or, or kind of focusing in on? We are seeing, and I, and I mentioned it before, and it's it's continuing, very large demands. You know, I'm a defense lawyer, so I can say this, you know, some to us, it's it's almost monopoly money. I mean, it's so ridiculous. So, you know, how right. can anybody entertain it? And they dig in for a long time. The whole concept of practicality and early resolution being better for everyone seems to be taking a back seat in a fair number of cases. And obviously, you know, the plaintiffs themselves, not the attorneys, are, you know, have to buy into this because that does add some extra time to the finish line. But that seems to be the trend. We are seeing a large amount of money being invested on experts on the plaintiff side, which is correspondingly causing a large amount to be invested on the defense side. And then at a point, both sides get a little stuck because they both have money in the case. So we are seeing cases that are well-funded from the expert side with large demands and those are going to be hard to settle until the very end, if at all. Right, which just continues this spiral that the insurance sector is seeing in terms of high reserves, limit losses, and everything else. You know, we're on our side, and I know you try to get creative 
as well um, in terms of you know how cases are resolved, doing early interventions and things like that. But we're trying to you know advise our customers to take strategic looks and how they're taking risk, you know, taking more risk, putting themselves in kind of the driver's seat. Obviously, the more risk you take, the more control you have as a as a defendant in the case. Are you seeing obviously clients that we know exist together, you know, have done this, but are are you seeing other clients start looking at it that way too and, you know, putting higher retentions on their on their program and take, you know, taking more of that driver's seat, that control? But we are seeing a fair amount of that, you know, and that's partially driven by the pricing and the insurance market. And it's 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 also driven by the word you use, control. That there are companies out there that have grown weary of an insurance company mentality that at times, you know, just throws money in at the end because it's just safer than trying cases. And uh, the settlements may be larger than the insured, the corporation would have liked. And uh, we are seeing a growing trend of larger retentions, retentions in the first place to give a corporation a, a sense of control of their own destiny and, and frankly, write their own you know, corporate reputation. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, a reputation that you will take cases to the finish line where compensation is not justified will serve a deterrent effect. And I think some companies are, are finding it very difficult to develop that personality using traditional insurance. Yeah, one problem or one argument that I've been having and seeing a lot lately with uh, the you know claims teams at carriers, uh, particularly those carriers that may not have a huge boots on the ground presence, but they're kind of managing from afar. I'm really seeing reserve battles happen more than I ever remember happening where obviously they're very concerned about social inflation and the numbers that are coming in and their ultimate exposure. But when I'm looking at this on a case-by-case basis, they want to reserve every case for just huge dollar amounts. And those obviously those dollar amounts are seen on on the loss runs that you get from a client and they're detrimental from that standpoint. And they don't seem very factual or fact-based at the end of the day. Their predictions often seem very high, but I'm assuming that that's done from just a saving my own skin perspective. Are you having those kind of discussions too and fighting that fight? We certainly, you know, see that and it, it is a problem. It's sort of what I tell my own attorneys when they evaluate a case. You don't evaluate it with its runaway potential. If everything goes wrong and it goes crazy and we get a bad jury and it's a rainy day and they're further mad because of that, what is a reasonably likely adverse outcome? That's the number you got to use. And there's a certain amount of self-protection in quarters that can happen with carriers. And in the quest to not look bad, you can, in the big picture, make the whole company look bad. So there's a balance there. And... I don't think anybody can litigate on the defense side based upon worst case runaway potential, because at that point, you're not managing risk. You're just taking the worst possible outcome that could ever happen in the world and saying, well, gee, you know, nothing worse happened than that. Exactly. I'm just reminded of a case that we both know in uh, Florida that happened where our insurer at the time called us to tender over 
the uh, self-insured retention and we did it and they made an enormous offer at that time I thought was enormous to the to the plaintiff plaintiff rejects it and then we get a, a you know not guilty on the case and I'm just like I, I see so many instances of bad bets happening I feel like by by carriers right now that it's it's hard to remember what it was like to win cases yeah, the risk aversive, uh, you know, is one word to use, you know, and, and I'm not painting an entire industry, you know, that's these, these are just pockets of right things that we've seen and just afraid of looking bad. And uh, it's very hard to run any business insurance or otherwise, where your whole goal is to just not look bad or have something come out worse than what you thought. You know, we've both been around this industry a long time. I don't think either one of us is batting a thousand. Uh, no, we occasionally make bad calls and you learn to live with them. And hopefully, you know, your clients understand it. But by and large, that's the best way to go, because a lot of times you're right. And then the long run, it's a better way to do things. Absolutely. Well, we're pushing up on an hour here, so uh, I think we covered it pretty well. Uh, appreciate your time today. Uh, it's definitely a, a very interesting, I think, topic matter. Like you guys are all over it. Uh, one that I I wish uh, more would be kind of fully engaged and uh, aware of because I do think that it's uh, something that is gradually eroding kind of the fabric of the, you know the insurance defense space too. So, but uh, thanks for being here, Mark, and uh, signing off on Axapod. Thanks everybody. <laughs>